Well, welcome to church. We got props. Samara's excited about that. So the four actually got a little rowdy today. I don't mean to threaten you. I'm just saying I expect some rowdiness in this service, okay? Have a little bit of fun. Cut it loose a little bit. Who's on summer break in here? Shout-outs to summer break people today. Yeah? Show off. Stop bragging. Cool. Good for you. I was giving a shout-out last service, and uh, Christian and Zach, these guys are looking right at me like, I have so many fun things to do this summer, and we're all like, good for you. Congratulations. I used to go to this dog park in Denver, and I'd always see this kid. He's probably a sixth grader at the dog park with his dog, so we became friends because we had pretty much everything in common. And, uh, and so right around this time a year ago, I'm at the dog park with him, and I'm like, hey, are you done with school yet? He says, actually, tomorrow's my last day, and then proceeds to just list off his whole three months of fun that's coming. Like, I'm going to camp, I'm going to the water park, I'm going to Oklahoma. Well, that's not as fun. But as he's walking away, he's, uh, I'm like, hey, man, well, I may not see you, so have a great summer. And he turns back, he's like, hey, and you have a su- great summer break, too. Just kind of nodded at him. Didn't want to ruin, like, when he thinks about where his life goes to know that there's not always summer break. I just let him have it. I was like, I'm going to have an awesome summer break. Just stared off into the distance, remembering two or three months to just do whatever you wanted. So enjoy it, Zach, for us, okay? Amanda Joe, enjoy it for us. This is not real life. It's not the real world. But we do get to wear vacation shirts in the summer, right? So... That's how you know there's a God. All right. Um, Philippians 3. We're excited to jump into Philippians 3. And you looked at the Instagram story. You've been getting ahead on the roots. You've read this chapter maybe ahead of time. So you know that Philippians 3 is where we talk about circumcision. (laughs) Air out of the room. Silence. So that is mentioned in this chapter. And I will say the word and I will talk about it not as like the logistical concept. So guys, you can tune back in. You say circumcision, all the guys are like, what? <laughs> Sorry, I was, I was just thinking about taxes next year because I'd rather think about that. <laughs> no, we're excited about Philippians 3. How are we doing so far? We're excited about <laughs> Philippians 3 because it's where the name of this series comes from, citizens, right? Where Paul says our citizenship is in heaven. So everything that we talk about today is on that foundation, all right? Remember that. Our citizenship is in heaven. We're going to dig into this chapter. We're going to go through it. And I know the Bible can be intimidating for a lot of people. Scripture can feel like, oh, man, I, the screens come up and I just black out. I can't understand anything in the Bible. Uh, it can be confusing. Maybe seems boring to you, but you'd feel bad saying that because it's God's book or whatever. So here's the reality Uh, As we unpack this, I truly believe that lives are going to be transformed in this room, not because of what I say, but because of what Paul wrote that God led him to say to this church that's so similar to us. And last service, a guy came up at the end of the service and essentially just said, hey, I want a relationship with Jesus. So this service is just bonus now. Like, that's why we do what we do. So we're just going to cut it loose and have some fun. But I know that listening to me talk is not the most exciting thing. And I know that scripture maybe is intimidating to you. So let's pray that God would give us some focus. So Jesus, fill this room with focus. Would you speak to us what you want to say out of Philippians chapter 3? Would you help us to know you more uh, when we walk out of here tonight? And I pray for people right now 
um, that maybe stand on a fence wondering if you're real, if you're good, who you are, would you move in their lives right now? In Jesus' name, amen. All right, no funny story. I already made you laugh. I did my job. Let's read the Bible. So chapter 1, let's begin. Philippians 3.1, finally. All right, so pause right there. And you're all like, here we go. This is going to be a five-hour church service. I shouldn't have closed my Bible because I just lost my spot. All right, I found it again. Finally, so I'm pointing this out to you for one reason. This is a four-chapter book. We're at the beginning of chapter three. So the Philippians, they didn't have chapters. Paul didn't, nobody puts chapters on the letters they write. We did that later as a church. So they get this long letter, and halfway through, Paul says, finally. And they're like, what do you, what do you mean, finally? It's going on for a long time. And I say that to you so that you will stop hating on Doug because he's not the first pastor to say I'm concluding and then talk for 20 more minutes or 25 more minutes. Paul actually invented the concept. That's why we do that. He's like, re-engage with my letter. Finally, 35 paragraphs later. All right. Stop distracting me. Here we go. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And we're going to stop there. And you're looking for a reason that you feel sick, so you can get out of here. So we are not here for the rest of your life. But this verse, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. We're going to come back to this. Remember this. Because what Paul is saying here is that we should rejoice in the Lord. But he's saying it from a prison cell in Rome. His death is imminent. He's gone through more suffering for the cross than probably all of us in this room combined. And this guy is telling us to rejoice, to be joyful. So there's got to be something to this that's deeper than a feeling. The great theologian Charles Spurgeon said about this verse, joy should be the normal state of the Christian. I want that to be true for me, and I'm guessing you do too. There's not anyone that wakes up like, oh, I hope I'm not joyful today. But I don't know if that's a normal state for us. And I don't know if people, when they think of Christians... Think of joy as the thing that we emote, the thing that we give off, right? I think people would say things like Christians are kind of uptight, pretty judgy. Christians are angry. They're the guy after the football game that's screaming at me that I'm going to hell because I was at a secular football game, like as if God hates football. Christians are weird, kind of awkward. They over-spiritualize things. They can't just have a normal conversation with you. They speak this Christianese language and they want to love on you. I don't want anyone to love on me, except for my wife. So we may not always be known for joy, right? But what Paul's saying and what Charles Spurgeon, who is a man who lived the faith, what they're saying is this should be the state of our life. So here's my thesis statement about joy. And it's not scripture. You don't have to get a tattoo of it. I don't recommend you do. It's just my idea. Our problem when it comes to joy is not an emotional problem or a circumstantial problem, it's an identity problem. And I'll explain, we're gonna dig in and figure out why I say that, but I don't think it's because we just don't feel it enough or we don't try to feel it enough. I don't think it's just because we don't experience enough good days and we go through hard stuff because Paul was like bitten by snakes and shipwrecked and beaten and all these awful things and he's in prison and yet he's joyful. So I don't think it's based on our emotion or circumstance. It doesn't rise and fall like happiness with phone calls and good news and bad news. I think it's an identity problem. We're going to work our way there. So let's 
Let's keep going. Verse 2. We made it through verse 1. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Okay, brace yourselves. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So first thing to take away from this verse, don't ever, please ever refer to us, our church, your group of Christian friends as the circumcision. <laughs> you got to come to Baked Bear. It's going to be so fun. You're going to love my tribe because you would say that. You're going to love these people because we are the circumcision. <laughs> and your friend's going to be like, I'm never talking to you again. I'm going online to fill out a zero-star Google review of your church without visiting because you're, what? Don't say that. Don't say that. Okay, that's free. That's, I don't think that's why Paul put that in there. But here's why he did. So Paul is out in the world. He's planting churches all over the place. And these people are coming together in faith in Jesus. And they're realizing that Jesus died for them and that he rose again and that there's eternal life with him. And they're being set free and they're finding this identity in him. And then this other group of guys is visiting Paul's churches when he's not there. They're called Judaizers. And what they would do is go in and say, hey, you know what Paul's been telling you about this Jesus guy? Not true. And actually, if you want to be good with God, you've got to be one of us. And to be one of us, as the Jewish people, our tradition, what we do, you have to be circumcised. And you've got to follow all these laws. We've got all these traditions. We've been at this for a long time. Who are you to say that you're good with God because of Jesus? So cool, great. Thanks, guys. Thanks for coming to the churches to spread that message. But that was happening all the time. So Paul is telling them and he's telling us, watch out for these guys. Because what they're trying to do is take grace off of you and put righteousness back on your shoulders to earn. They're turning this back into religion. So let me illustrate this for you. Okay? Um, Paul, he says in verse 4, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. So take that. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He says, you want to play the religion game? I'll beat all those guys at it. My resume is way better than theirs. And he starts bringing it to what this represents, which is religion. And basically what any major world religion will tell you, and I know there's nuances and differences, and this is a blanket statement, but what religion will tell you is that righteousness is on your shoulders and that your life is put on a scale of good and bad, sin and good deeds. And your goal by the time you die is to get the good side to be the side that weighs just a little bit more than the bad side. Okay? Some of you right now are like, that's my understanding of Christianity, and I hope we blow that up today. So, Paul's going, okay, let's talk about my good things. I'm from the right people. I was circumcised on the right day. Follow the traditions. Oh, the law? Memorized it. Nailed it. He says, blameless when it comes to righteousness. Like, who says that? But if this is an outward game of flesh, then Paul's like, yeah, I'm better than all these guys. Oh, you guys are passionate enough to go preach your religion and tell people what I'm saying is wrong? I used to kill people. That's how passionate I was. So take that, right? That's what Paul is saying. He's like, if anyone's going to win this game, it's going to be me. So you may hear some of that stuff and be like, circumcision and uh, Hebrew of Hebrews and stuff. I don't, that doesn't relate to me. Okay, let's turn this modern into this room. 
I'm not going to have you like yell out your sin. Oh, put, put me down for pornography. Thanks. Yeah, put my weight on there. But let's put this in context of today because we play this game. A lot of us have played this game for a lot of years of our lives. Okay? So we're like, all right, well, I love to start with the good because there's so much to say. I'm at church right now, kind of actually enjoying it because this guy is saying all kinds of crazy things. Sometimes sing along with the words. I read the Bible one time in a year, so that's going good. Um, All right, let's take a step back, though, because I'm kind of ashamed of my faith at work. I don't really share it. And by the way, this is like a scale I got off Amazon. It's not really working like a, well. I'm like, you buy a scale to do one thing, weigh stuff. And the scale is just like, no. Okay? So I may have to assist it to just, okay. All right. So, um, well, I have a lot of road rage, and I yell the F word at everybody on the roads in Austin. Okay? That, that was one of you, not me. Uh, I have a Red Rock sticker on my car. I'm not going to do that. And you're like, oh, I have a Red Rock sticker on my car. (laughs) Whoops. All right. Um, Yeah, and I've had some pretty bad fights with some friends and said some pretty hurtful things that I don't mean. Um, Yeah, there's some things that I'm not proud of that have happened behind closed doors that I've done when I was drunk on a Saturday night. Um, Yikes, this is starting to get a little bit bit dark. Well, Well, let me think. Like, I... But I do pray a little bit, I think. Um, I gave $5 to that homeless guy at the stoplight the other day. Although I did tell him to get a job, so that's a really cool thing to say to a homeless guy. Um, Here's the problem with what happens here, is it starts to haunt us if we live every day playing this game, right? For a couple reasons. One, how much does stuff weigh? Like, what do you have to do to counterbalance adultery? Is that worth more or less than the pornography addiction? How much does stuff weigh? Like that $5 to the homeless guy, how much does that weigh compared to taking him to lunch? Like how much more could I have done to counterbalance, right? And then, okay, so how much does stuff weigh? How about this? I didn't bring up the past, okay? So for me, high school, college, yikes. So then we get into this mentality of like, but now I'm doing better. Like I'm living a better life, more righteous, right? So, so what I do now could maybe make up for some of the college stuff. Then you kind of panic because you're like, but then if I have to do things now to make up for what happened then, then 10 years or 20 years from now, I'm going to be making up for what I'm doing right now that's not good because this stuff that's good counts towards that. And then I'm never going to catch up and then I'm just going to die and my scale never, it never went the right way. Here's the really haunting thing. I never even brought up thoughts. That was all just the outward stuff. So the lust in our minds, the anger, the judgment we make about people, those might count as a little, like a half of these, but they're going to pile up pretty high, right? Don't think anyone would want their list of daily thoughts put up on the screens and us be like, okay, you got a lot of mission trips to go on, right? Okay? So it doesn't really work. It's impossible the religion game, the self-made righteousness game. And you'd say, okay, but the Ten Commandments and the law, like that was kind of that, right? Like God telling them you should do these things and then they didn't. So, so that was kind of it. And so here's how, here's how we picture God when we see him through Old Covenant theology. It's like this. What if 
I use this scale at my house and pretend in this illustration that this scale actually works. What if I judged my son, Ezekiel, daily on this? So he's a baby right now, so it's like, oh, you, you woke me up in the middle of the night because you pooped everywhere. Didn't appreciate that. But you can't think bad thoughts as a baby, as far as we know. Research has not concluded. But yeah, what about when he gets older, though? Okay, so maybe he's all right right now, but what about when he's a teenager and he's out Peyton, Austin, Red, okay, making bad decisions, and I hope he doesn't. But what if that stuff starts to happen? What if he starts to, to make mistakes? Or what if, if I'm true to this analogy, then I have to get a device and I read all his thoughts, so I have to weigh him on those, which would be gruesome. And I, I use that to determine if he's welcome in our home. So I say to my son, you know what? Unfortunately, after the end of this week, your scale's just on the bad side. You're not welcome here. That's how a lot of us picture God. Okay? Here's the point of the law. And there's a great pastor, Matt Chandler, who has helped me to learn so much of, of things like Philippians. And he, he related the law to a diagnostic, like an x-ray. That the law was not the cure. It was the x-ray to show us that we were broken. It was the x-ray to show us that this is impossible, that the game of religion, we cannot win on our own. That's the whole point. So we hang up the Ten Commandments in our house because it's noble things to strive for, and it's basically like being like, check out my brokenness and my death sentence because I can't do this. I can't do this on my own. So enter who? Jesus. Jesus does what a loving father would do, what I would do if it came to Ezekiel. I'd say, anything I got to do to get his scale on the other side. Give him my scale. If I'm on the good side, give him mine. That's the heart of God. That's Jesus. That's what he does. Jesus shows up and he goes, yeah, you guys really impressed me. Walk off. Perfect life, sinless, perfect blood spilled, sacrifice for all the sin of humanity, the scale's been tipped permanently there. And he doesn't just say, okay, and I'm going to dangle this in front of you for the rest of your life so you can start to question if maybe this could undo that. No, 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 the scale's gone. Jesus comes on the scene and says, I've dealt with that. You're not playing that game anymore. So let's reset here. Paul's given us two options so far to life. What we do in life, how we view life. Here's the two options so far, Jesus or religion. Jesus, a relationship with him, or self-righteous, self-made religious that becomes subjective, relative, and confusing, and scary, and haunting. And then, later in chapter 3, Paul's going to give us the third option. Verse 18. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. So, Paul's pointing out this other group that would also say, yeah, there's no scale, because nothing matters, because there's no God, there's nothing beyond this world, none of this matters. This just all exists, and then we live, and then we die, and who cares what you do? What's ironic about that is a lot of people who carry that mentality in life still have the be a good person, self-righteous kind of narrative, which I'm actually grateful for, because if you think this whole place is going to burn down, but you're not lighting a candle, then thank you. But that's the other option. 
Paul is saying, you can have Jesus, you can have religion, or you can say that none of this matters, there's no scale, what I do doesn't matter, I'm just going to die, and that's it. Those are your three options, okay? Now Paul's going to tell us his choice. So, uh, based uh, on uh, number two, Paul's conclusion of option number two, which is the self-righteous, self-made, be a good person, religion. Okay, let's go to verse seven. He says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, because you can't, because it doesn't work, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. How crazy is that? Paul's like, I want to suffer with Jesus. I want that more than a self-righteous religious game. Man, there must be something good about Jesus there. So, So Paul said, I had this down. And all that stuff, my resume, my good works, my righteousness, my scale, nothing to me. means nothing to me in comparison to just knowing Jesus. And think about the slave girl who we we heard that this story started with in Philippi. Paul, there was this demon-possessed slave girl, and Paul set her free, and this demon comes out of her, and she's not a slave anymore, and she's in this church family. Think about her hearing Paul say that, where... Like Paul was a Roman, he had Roman citizenship and he was at the top of the Jewish ladder. So he, he had like won the righteousness game as he pointed out. And she's hearing Paul say, none of that stuff matters to me. I think a lot of people probably in that church viewed Paul how a lot of people today view like pastors or people in ministry at like normal churches that aren't with people like Doug and Ryan and I. But at a lot of churches, people view pastors the way that these people probably viewed Paul, of like, well, of course God's going to be good with him. It's Paul. He has done a lot of good things. He started this church, and like, he's a good guy, but I was just a slave girl, demon-possessed, like, dark life. I'm pro- these, these guys are probably right. Like, I probably do need to go do some stuff because there's no way God could just love me for, for me. It's kind of the mentality that they would hear this in, and Paul's saying, no, 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 no. I've played that game. I want to know Jesus. I don't, option two, no thank you. Okay, what about option three? Well, option three would be tough to pitch to Paul because Paul was on a donkey and got knocked off of it by the resurrected power of Christ. He then, a former murderer of Christians, became the greatest church planter and missionary and seeing the gospel spread all through the Roman Empire and survive against persecution from the most powerful empire in history. He saw people stand up that were dead, sick people that weren't sick anymore. So it's going to be pretty hard to convince Paul that nothing bigger is going on here and none of this matters. So Paul says option three, yeah, kind of, kind of elementary at that point to him. And Paul doesn't say that in like a condescending way. He actually says that he, feels, he has tears for those people. He has tears for the people that literally walk around every single day, and some of you, it might be you, it was me for most of my life, saying, 
I just want to be fulfilled because I'm a human being, and the only way I know to do that is to try all of this earthly stuff. But the problem is you're created in God's image. You're an eternal being, and temporary stuff is never going to satisfy you. And Paul is saying those poor people, what they don't know is the taste of eternity and the eternal things and what knowing Jesus is because there's only, there's only one thing that's going to fulfill you, and it's him. So option two, no, I already played that game. Option three, no, no, no. No, there's something so much better for us. So option one, Jesus. And uh, you may hear that, and these people might have heard that, and you might be like, if I'm honest, and this, this is true for me, I don't know that every single day the number one, like, I want to just know Jesus more if that's like my ultimate goal every day of my life. If we're honest. And Paul has said, like, that's, that's what I want. Number one thing. And so these people like us might hear that and be like, oh, maybe... Maybe I'm not a good Christian. And we start looking at that thing again. Here's what Paul says. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. He's disarming us. But I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus but those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. But let us hold true to what we have attained. Paul is saying, hey, don't put this back into this equation. Don't compare yourself to me. And, and guess what? I'm not perfect. I don't have this all figured out. I can't just say that I've made this relationship with Jesus completely my own. He's, he's telling us it's, it's okay if you're imperfect in this journey of following Jesus. And that verse 15 in the Passion Translation, it says, if anyone is not yet gripped by these desires, God will reveal it to them. We should like feel so much peace in hearing that. Because there's so often where, if we're honest, maybe that's not the number one desire of our heart. Maybe we haven't reached a point where like we wake up and we just live and breathe Jesus and it's all we want. And he says, God will reveal it to you, just keep after him. So some of you in this room, here's your challenge this week. If you're like, I do want to know Jesus, and I, and I think I love him, and I think I want to know him more, here's your challenge. Every time you start to play this game, every time you think to pray or think about God, whatever, ask him for more passion for him. Ask him to, to give you a hunger to know him more. And it will happen. He will reveal it to you. Paul said it. It's right here. So that's your challenge for some of you. Just ask him. All right, so let's recap. Paul said a lot of big things, theological things, things that are why he got killed. He said, we're not living for the temporary anymore because it's never going to fill us up. We can forget what lies behind us, the sin, the DIY religion game, trying to be righteous on our own, the shame, put that all behind us. We strain forward to what's ahead. We strain forward to life with Jesus. We're secure enough to admit that we're not perfect. It's okay to say that because this isn't a game of righteousness. How can Paul say all that stuff? Because that's flying in the face of what people are teaching in this time and a lot of what people are teaching in this time. How can Paul say that? Verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven. 
And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. You can close your Bible. We've completed chapter 3. Achievement unlocked. Congratulations. Paul can say all that because he's a citizen of heaven. Now, we hear citizenship And this seems a lot more logical and comfortable when we hear that because we live in the world where for all of history, nations have been arguing about what our nation argues about all the time, which is borders and who's in and who's out. So we hear citizenship and we're like, well, people, you have to earn that to become a citizen somewhere. Here's here's what I think happens. You have that like salvation moment like a guy in the four o'clock just had, just said, "I I want a relationship with Jesus. And so Like Jesus, when he went to his disciples, he said, repent and believe. He's saying, leave the old life behind. That self-righteous game, your sin, you being God of your own life, leave it behind and follow me and believe that my grace is sufficient for you, that I'm enough. Start a relationship with me. Or Paul says in Romans, if we believe in our hearts, confess with our tongues that Jesus is Lord, that we will be saved. So that's that moment. In our culture, generally, it looks like, hey, put your hand in the air if you want to start a relationship with Jesus right now. Because it's like this outward expression of what's happening here, right? Paul says this isn't just an outward game. This is about a filling of the spirit, transformation of God's spirit, a relationship with Jesus. So we have this moment where we decide, all right, I'm all in with Jesus. And what it should feel like is, whew, I just stepped off a scale. I'm not being measured anymore. I'm a citizen of heaven. But it generally feels like, oh, you're a Christian now. Here's your scale. Go be a good Christian. Go be a good person. Do your good works, which flies in the face of the cross. It makes no sense. Why would you go try to earn something that you already have been given, right? Why do we put a scale and set it on top of our citizenship certificate, our passport of heaven, whatever? Why do we do that? Paul's saying, no, 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 no. Because you're not a citizen of a nation that has limits or boundaries. You're a citizen of a place that has infinite room. No walls, no borders, unlimited capacity, which is why we can just keep on making heaven more crowded because there's always room for more. Okay? So Paul can say all these things and tell us them boldly because he's a citizen of heaven, which leads us back to the very beginning of where we started. We can live in a state of joy because we're citizens of heaven. Our identity is a citizen of heaven. Remember, it's not an emotional problem. It's not that you just don't want to feel it or you don't try hard enough to feel it. It's not a circumstance problem, right? The guy in prison is telling us to be joyful. People all through history have had joy and trials and sufferings because they were with Jesus. No, it's an identity problem. Because all the time we forget what we're citizens of. We forget what our identity is and we start playing this game all over again. So, in our identity as citizens of heaven, where does our joy come from? First, knowing that nobody's keeping score. So my golf game has become so much more fun and enjoyable to go out with my buddies ever since I stopped being uptight about the score. Like I used to be the guy that's like, ah, that's a stroke. You're like, what is this, a PGA? Cool, man. We're playing at like a local golf course. And I've realized Nobody cares what my score is when I go play golf. 
I can go home and tell Steph I shot a 68, or I can tell her a 98, and she's going to love me all the same and not even know what that means. My son, does, he can't say golf. So he's not going to care. I can text Ryan, hey, man, shot an 82, and he's either going to be like, cool, you had to tell somebody, congratulations. His life's not going to change. So why am I keeping a score, right? Man, it's so free and fun to just go enjoy a day out playing golf with my friends when I'm not worried about a score that nobody cares about. Just like it's so fun to go live a life as a Christian when you can just go enjoy life with God and remember that he's not keeping score on you. You're a citizen of heaven. Okay? Next, there's joy in getting to know Jesus. So, Steph and I were dating. We're in the engagement phase. And that lifestyle, who's dating in here? Okay. <laughs> what? <laughs> All right. So, um, hey, come back for our relationship series in two weeks. All right. So nobody's real proud of that. But... Okay, Church of Young Singles, nobody's dating. Val, what's wrong with these people? I don't know. Well, when I dated, which is when you and somebody else start to like each other and you go places together and enjoy time together, I, it's like the scale life every day, right? You're like, okay, she's going to see me today. I got to look my best, and there's limits to that. So I got cru to crush the humor game. I got to plan elaborate dates, uh, think of something fun. We got to have a deep spiritual conversation because, you know, we're a Christian couple. So we can't just talk about stuff. It's got to be like, and what Bible verse made you think of that? Like, whatever. Um, I can't tell you the difference between the state of my life when we were in that phase because I knew I wanted to marry her compared to our wedding day. So on our wedding day, we're standing across from each other. We're exchanging vows and rings. And in that moment, I realized... I'm not striving to try to be her husband anymore. I am just her husband. That's my identity. And she chose me. And everyone's like, yeah, we've seen her. Nobody gets that. <laughs> but she chose me, and she walked down an aisle to prove it. Jesus, he chose me, and he hung on a cross, and he walked out of a tomb to prove it. So... I don't spend the rest of my life trying to become a friend of Jesus, one of his guys, one of God's sons, because I already am one, right? Like, how dumb would it be on our wedding day if I was like, okay, I have a great life. I got the husband card, so see you later. Steph's like one of the greatest gifts that God's ever given me. I pursue her, and I want to get to know her more and more and more and live life with her because I love her because she's my wife. In that moment where you say yes to Jesus, don't stop there. He's chosen you. He hung on a cross and he walked out of a tomb for you. You get to pursue him for the rest of your life because he's the greatest gift that has ever been given in the history of literally everything. We get to pursue him and there's joy in it. And for some of you, you hear that and you're like, okay, here comes the bullet points. Read your Bible more, engage in worship, join a life group, pray often. And we hear those things a lot of times, like spiritual disciplines, which is the most like, boring phrase to put on those things. So everyone's like, yeah, I can't get, a, can get real excited about doing my spiritual disciplines today. But I bet this week, if you dove into now Philippians chapter 4, or back into 3, or somewhere else in the Bible, 
you went through the roots a little bit, or you listened to some worship songs, or you actually just went somewhere where it's quiet and just said, God, I don't even know exactly how praying works, but I just want to talk to you. And you did those things, not for this, man, you'd find joy in those things. But so often we're just playing this game with those spiritual disciplines where it's like, oh, I need to read my Bible today so Jesus likes me today so I can make up for that thing that happened this last weekend. And he's like, stop playing that game. I hung on a cross so you can stop playing that game. So stop. And go do those things and dive into God's word and read these accounts and these poems and these stories and these things that Jesus did and enjoy them. Because you're not trying to read those things to earn something from God. He's given it to you so you can know him more. In worship. Like, I was the guy, when I first started going to church, I'd be in the back of worship like, what is, like, what is the dance moves going on here? This is bizarre. I don't sing. I lose my voice. You can hear it in like five minutes. Terrible singing voice. But the more I started knowing Jesus and walking with him, and I stand in worship, and sometimes the words get me, but a lot of times I close my eyes and I picture moments when I was the awkward guy in the back, thought everyone was crazy, and realized in that moment that I was desperately trying to get off of this, and I couldn't do it myself. I think about the things I've gotten to experience that I don't deserve, like standing on this stage and preaching the gospel, and I, I worship God, and I put my hands in the air, and I pump my fists, and I praise him because I get to know him because he gave me citizenship in heaven. So maybe you need a refresh. Sometimes Steph and I need to go out on like a day of dates to just kind of remember we're a gift to each other because life gets going and you get into a routine. Maybe you and Jesus need a little, I'm not going to say dating because that's going to give all you an excuse to be like, I'm not dating right now, I'm dating Jesus. <laughs> he didn't come to date you, he came to save you, but <laughs> just saying. So, uh, I'm glad we're recording the 6 p.m. because this is just out of control. <laughs> Maybe you need to go refresh your relationship with Jesus and take your uh, reading of the Bible and praying and those things off of a scale that he's not holding in front of you. And you also can realize that God created all of this. Paul's saying, hey, this isn't an outward game anymore of what's spiritual and what's okay and what's, what's not. And I'm not saying you can go justify certain things like, I have a passion for this. What I am saying is there's a lot of things that aren't what you hear in church that you can connect to God through. Like playing golf with my friends or a great dinner and a great conversation that like goes somewhere and we, we all walk away from it like, man, I feel built up from that. Or wakeboarding and just enjoying God's creation and just getting obliterated by the lake. There's something about that that I'm like, oh, God, thank you for just letting us do wild, fun things. I love to drive late at night and listen to music in this city and just think about Austin and what could happen. And when, when Zeke is 25 years old, what this city might look like. I love doing that stuff. That brings me closer to Jesus. And it's not unlike the spiritual discipline checklist. But everything you do is spiritual. So the last place that we find joy, we find it because nobody's keeping score and we get to know Jesus. And the last place is knowing where this ends. So one of the places that I, I really feel like I connect to God is at a wedding. And that might sound weird to you, but I love weddings because it's a party. I'm an Enneagram 7, so I'm programmed to love weddings. 
You, raise your hand if you typed me. Like, I know what he is. I know what his Enneagram number is. Enneagram people are weird. So, <laughs> so I love weddings because it's a party and everybody's together and it's fun. But the more I know Jesus, the more that there's something that's speaking to me in a wedding. Let me say it like this. When I'm out in a crazy day in Austin and I'm working and things are hectic and we're trying to keep this church afloat and figure out what to do, I can get overwhelmed and feel like life's crazy. But I have these moments where I stop and I think about that night that's coming. And I think, okay, I'm going to go home. When I get home, I'm just going to not have my computer not going to work on stuff. And Steph's going to be there, and now Zeke's going to be there, and maybe we'll take our dog Bowser for a walk, or maybe we'll watch a movie or play a game or have a conversation or just literally sit there and just try to get Zeke to smile at us. And when I, when I think about that, I feel joy in the moment, even if my day is crazy, because I know where the day ends. So when I stand at a wedding, I have this picture from Revelation that tells us that this all doesn't end at an infinitely long, boring church service. It's described as the wedding supper of the Lamb, a wedding reception, a party, where we dance and we sing and we cheers and we tell stories and we, we celebrate our citizenship in heaven. That's where this ends. So life can be crazy and trials and tragedies are hard. And I'm not saying they're not. I'm not asking you to be a robot that's like, no, I'm joyful because I am a follower of Christ. I am a citizen of heaven. Nothing hurts me. That's not what Paul is saying, but he's saying, I can sit in a jail cell right now, and I'm about to get beheaded, and I can rejoice in the Lord because I'm going to the wedding supper of the Lamb. We can put the scale away. We can run after Jesus in freedom. We can make Austin look like heaven. And we can live in a state of joy because our citizenship is in heaven. Did you guys rise to your feet?